This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Now, enjoy the show. Your mind races, doesn't it? Your attempts at distraction will not upend me. I'm on a roll tonight. Yes, you have a surprisingly keen eye this evening. Why the sudden improvement? All I need is time. Well, time, a clear head, and an effective strategy. Which your patronizing questions will not undermine. Checkmate. My word, you have been temporarily struck with genius. Or perhaps I've been concealing it from you for years. Mm, Perhaps, but I suspect the former. Suspect what you will. It doesn't matter. I am the victor tonight. That you are, old chap. That you are. Chess, a game of mental prowess and psychological stamina. Play it on a board consisting of 64 squares in an 8x8 grid. A specific set of rules and parameters guide and limit the players, but it is their unique and brilliant tactics that lead to success. And the most talented players think long-term. Instead of deciding their next move, they calculate a sequence of moves as an effective strategy. This requires foresight, planning, and a clever methodology. Would you believe the subject of chess factors into our next unsolved murder? Well, don't let that mislead you. Our victim, a 69-year-old woman by the name of Julia Wallace, didn't choke on chess pieces malevolently shoved down her throat. Or get killed during an international chess competition. But the subject of chess does in fact come up. Just maybe not in the way you might think. So, who exactly was Julia Wallace? She was a British housewife living in 1930s Liverpool with her husband, William Herbert Wallace. Cause of death? 11 brutal blows to the head, most likely with a blunt object. She was found in her home in front of the fireplace. Her head was so bashed in that some of her brains had spilled out onto the floor beside her. The blood spatter alone would have been enough to turn your stomach. It was a gruesome, burgundy-stained nightmare. And it is one that remains so infamous, it has even been ranked as the greatest unsolved murder second only to the killings done by Jack the Ripper. Which, if you remember, also took place on the mean streets of metropolitan England. So, how's that for an introduction? There's something else that's special about this particular case. Someone was convicted in the murder. Drum roll, please. William Herbert Wallace, Julia's husband. He was a life insurance salesman who loved chemistry, electronics, the violin, and of course, chess. But the story does not end with William's conviction. No, it's actually more of a second beginning. 
This is an unsolved murder, if you recall. And a unique one at that. There aren't numerous suspects to examine. There are primarily two. And one of the presiding theories claims that the two suspects may have actually been the same person. One of the many oddities of this unforgettable crime. Welcome to Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories and the first installment of Julia Wallace. If you want to review an episode of Unsolved Murders or hear our investigation into other cases, you can find them all in your favorite podcast directory. Don't forget to subscribe. You can also listen on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. And I'm Carter Roy. Today, we will take you through part one of the killing of Julia Wallace, which has generated a plethora of speculation and spawned several books. Two of them actually called The Killing of Julia Wallace. Crime writers especially find this story stimulating. Prolific crime novelist P.D. James may have even based her book The Skull Beneath the Skin on this very murder. And famed noir writer Raymond Chandler, known for his novel The Big Sleep, was so intrigued by this case that he once said... The Wallace case is the non pareil of all murder mysteries. It is unbeatable. It will always be unbeatable. Because of the distinct nature of this case, we are going to do something a little different on the show. As we retrace the timeline leading up to and after the murder in great detail, pay close attention to the events involving William Wallace. But also keep your mind open to other possible suspects and scenarios. Then we will take you through William's trial and leave you to be the judge of this puzzling and unparalleled mystery. This one is too peculiar for a simple answer. Yeah. And yet, maybe, it's the simplest answer of all. That is the unsettling paradox of the killing of Julia Wallace. Liverpool in 1931. Under the rule of King George V, England was facing a terrible depression, and unemployment was widespread. Around the time of Julia's murder, a flu epidemic was rampant, and the city was still recovering from a dense fog. The Anfield district, where this story is set, had its fair share of problems, including a string of burglaries supposedly committed by the Anfield housebreaker, a nameless perpetrator. Despite the changing economic and ecological conditions, William and his wife Julia enjoyed a quiet, modest life in their three-bedroom flat. William loved the violin although he was supposedly mediocre at best. And Julia knew her way around the keys of a piano. The two would host friends in their front parlor and perform musical duets. So, how did these two music lovers come to find each other? We must go back a ways. Julia Wallace was born Julia Dennis in 1861, which would make her 69 at the time of her death. However, we're not sure if William knew her true age. Her gravestone states that she was 52. She lied about her age? Why? That's unclear. Vanity? Denial? Fear of aging? Well, this wasn't the only thing she may have been keeping from William. According to William's diary, he was only aware of one of Julia's siblings, her sister Amy. But Julia had others. Well, couldn't they have just been one of those tight-lipped couples that didn't share everything with each other? It's possible. We should note that there are conflicting perspectives on the two as a unit. Their neighbors, the Johnstons, thought they were loads of fun and a normal, affectionate couple. Others have referred to William and Julia as peculiar, with a strained attitude towards each other, as if they lacked sympathy for one another. One thing's for sure. Appearance-wise, they were a bit of an odd couple. 
William was a staggering six foot two, lean and gangly. He was often seen wearing gold rimmed glasses and a bowler's hat. Julia was a foot shorter than her husband and often wore outdated fashions. Well, this would make sense, considering she was almost two decades older than she let on. That is so strange. I've heard of people pretending that they were 25 when they were really 30, but 17 years? That is odd. Well, William, on the other hand, was born in 1878, so he was actually about the same age that Julia claimed to be. Growing up, he worked as a draper's assistant and then got a job as a printer. When he was 25, he traveled to India for work. But his trip was hardly what he expected. While abroad, William began having recurring issues with his kidney and eventually had it removed. But complications with his remaining kidney would plague him for the rest of his life. When he returned to England, he moved to Harrogate, where he worked as an election agent for the Liberal Party. But when he lost that job, his father got him a position at the Prudential Assurance Company. A few years later, William met Julia, who lived just down the street from him. They married three years later, and the two moved to 29 Wolverton Street, Liverpool, in 1915. Years later, William's health problems returned. He'd vent about his kidney ailments in his diary, an item that would be heavily scrutinized during the investigation and trial. According to some of the entries, he was depressed, unsettled, and moody. Other entries painted a different picture, that he was fond of his wife and enjoyed the simple beauties of nature. He even wrote about the time he took her to Stanley Park to observe the winter's frost on the trees. William was not alone in his ailments. It was discovered after her death that Julia was somewhat incontinent. The forensics experts examining her body found her wearing a handmade adult diaper. She also suffered from bouts of various illnesses, and friends of the couple would gossip that the two were constantly competing over who was the sickest of the household. And not in an endearing 1970s sitcom kind of way. They may have actually resented each other for being so sickly. I guess the when you're weak, I'm strong adage didn't really apply to them. Probably not. Now, while they may have been equally sick in body, it can be said that William was much stronger in mind. He was a perpetual knowledge seeker. In addition to selling insurance, he studied chemistry and electronics, which earned him a certification in each field. He even used the extra bedroom in his house for a makeshift laboratory. It is believed that working at an insurance agency was not William's true passion, and that he may have actually viewed the work as beneath him. Because of this, he may have been quite disappointed with his life. Even if this was the case, he made sure to pursue other interests. And that included chess. He belonged to the Liverpool Chess Club, which met twice a week in the basement of Cottle City Cafe. And it is here at this chess club where the story really begins. So sit back, buckle up, and pay close attention as we take you through the timeline leading up to Julia's frightful end. The date, January 19th, 1931, 7.20 p.m. It all starts with a phone call. Hello? Is this Mr. Wallace? No, this is not. Is Mr. Wallace there? He is not. Will he be there? I can't say. Can you give me his address? I'm afraid I cannot. Will you be sure to see him? Like I said, I don't know. Can you get in touch with him? As it is a matter of importance to Mr. Wallace. Mm, I'm not sure. May I ask who inquires? This is R.M. Qualtro. All right, Mr. Qualtro, I'll... It's about an endowment policy for my daughter. Oh, I see. This is insurance business. Yes, that is correct. 
This is the location of a chess club gathering. Perhaps you should call him at another number. This is the only number I have. Could you pass along a message? I believe I could do that, if I see him. I'd like to discuss the matter tomorrow evening, 7.30. My address is... Hold on a moment. Let me fetch a pencil. Okay, go ahead. 25 Menlove Gardens East. Okay, I've got it. Thank you. 7.30 p.m., ten minutes after the rather peculiar phone call, William shows up at the club, and Samuel Beatty, the chess club captain, gives him the message. But William doesn't know a man by the name of R.M. Qualtro. What's even weirder, William has never heard of the street Men Love Gardens East. When he asks the other club members, they suspect it's somewhere off Men Love Avenue. It has to be. Despite the obscure address, William is sure he will find it. He shrugs it off, hopeful at the possibility of a new client and commission. He wins that night at chess against his opponent, uh, Mr. McCartney. A victory for William is a rare occurrence, so he ends the night on a high note. Tomorrow night will be a different story. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, the story continues. January 20th, the following evening, 6 p.m. Wallace returns home from work. Julia! I'm in the parlor. Nice night for a fire. Is it? I wouldn't know. I've been cooped up here all day. Then you should go out for a stroll. I can't, William. I'm sick. Didn't you hear me coughing last night? It carried on well into the morning. I must have slept through it. Or feigned sleep to ignore my discomfort. Oh, Julia. I would not. And there's this ringing in my ears. I haven't the faintest idea why. Well, you do best not to focus on it. Easy for you to say. You're having one of your good days. I'm feeling energized, yes. My victory last night revived my spirit. And perhaps my body as well. Don't gloat, William. I haven't made anything for supper. Oh. Well, that's no bother. I'll warm something up before I go. Go? You're not going to the club again, are you? No, no. A prospective client. Up near Menlove Avenue. Mysterious fellow. Calls me up at the club. Leaves an address no one's ever heard of. Oh, William, honestly. You can't have heard of all the places in Liverpool, can you? I suppose not. I'll tell you. I'd much rather sit in front of that fire than solicit business this evening. Then you should do so instead of whining about it. Bring him up and reschedule. I'm afraid I can't. He left no number. Just the address. Well, then, you must see to your appointment. Yes, I suppose that's best. Sometime between 6.30 and 6.45 p.m., the milk boy, Alan Close, drops by to collect his earnings from Julia. Hello, Alan. Hello, Mrs. Wallace. I've got your payment right here. Are you managing to stay dry in this drizzle? I am, ma'am. Good. Thank you, Mrs. Wallace. You say hello to your mother for me. 
I will. I rarely get out these days, just as my cough seems to be leaving me. It comes back with a vengeance. I'm sorry you haven't been feeling well, Mrs. Wallace. No, thank you. At least someone around here has the decency to say so. Good night, Alan. Good night, Mrs. Wallace. He would be the last person, other than William, to see Julia alive. 7.06 p.m. On his way to his 7.30 appointment with R.M. Qualtro, William transfers from one streetcar to another. At this point, he hasn't spoken with Qualtro. Right. He's only received the note from the chess club captain, which contains the written address. Good evening. I need directions to Menlove Gardens East. East, you say? I reckon you'll get off at Penny Lane. Transfer to a 5A car. All right. Make sure you call out Penny Lane. I can't miss it. Don't forget now. Penny Lane. You must call it out so I can hear. Like I said, I'll call it out for you. Why was Wallace so hell-bent on the conductor calling out Penny Lane? Was he afraid he wouldn't make it to Qualtro in time? Or was he making it known to the conductor and all the other passengers that he would be at Penny Lane at a certain time? Oh, I see. Possibly establishing an alibi, making a fuss so that the conductor would recognize him and place him on the streetcar at 7.06. From 7.06 to 7.15, to be exact. And that's when Wallace gets off the streetcar and boards a 5A car that will take him to Menlove Avenue. I need to get to Menlove Gardens East. Will this car take me there? Well, Menlove Avenue is only 650 yards up the line. But sir, there's a Menlove Gardens West and Menlove Gardens North and South. I don't recall a Menlo Gardens East. This is the address I was given. It must exist. Well then, I imagine the street you're looking for isn't too far from there. Menlo Avenue coming up. This is so very strange. Oh well. Yes? Hello, I'm looking for a man who lives at 25 Menlo Gardens East. Oh, this is Menlo Gardens West. I know. I'm having a bit of trouble locating his residence. Do you happen to know him? His name is R.M. Qualtro. Hmm. I'm sorry. I can't say I've ever met a man by that name. All right. Thank you for your time. Constable? Yes? I'm in a bit of a pickle. This man and R.M. Qualtro left word for me to come by his flat to go over an endowment policy for his daughter. I sell insurance, you see. Uh, I work at the Pru. I'm having the hardest time finding his address. It's written right here, 25 Menlove Gardens East. Hmm, I don't recognize that. Oh, wait, what time do you have? It isn't 8 o'clock yet, is it? No, uh, 7.45 p.m. Yes, that's the time I have as well. I'm running late, you see. (laughs) This has just been the most dreadful evening. No one seems to know where this blasted place is. Sorry I couldn't be more of service. That's all right. Carry on, Constable. Is it a bit weird that William told the cop all that information about Qualtro? Could have been another attempt to establish alibi, especially with an officer of the law. Or maybe he was just so fed up he needed to vent about the evening. Despite his bad luck, he continued to inquire, this time with a sales girl working at a newsstand. (sighs) Do you know what I'm looking for? I can't say that I do. Um, today's paper? Or is it a rare magazine? Neither. It's an address. 
25 Menlove Gardens East. Hmm. You can check the directory, but I don't believe I've seen that street. Are you sure you have the correct address? I'm not sure of anything at the moment. I hate to lose a customer on account of such foolishness, but I suppose I can't search all night. Thank you. Good night to you. And to you. William made one more inquiry at a post office, but after this final attempt, he abandoned his search and headed home. 8.45 p.m. William's next-door neighbors, the Johnstons, find him at the back door of his house on Wolverton Street. <sighs> Bollocks! William, are you all right? I can't seem to get the door open. The front won't open either. Are you using the right key? I believe so. Well, that street light's still out. Makes it nearly impossible to see. You might be using the wrong key. Shall I fetch the spare? I suppose. John's gone to get the key, William. Maybe yours is rusted. <sighs> We're just trying to be difficult. I've had a god-awful night. The wind is not in my favor today. Oh, what a pity. Here, old chap. Oh, here we go. I've got it. Thanks, anyway. Is Julia at home? Yes, she should be. Or maybe she retired early. I'll put on a lamp. <gasps> oh, God. William, what is it? Come and see. She's been killed. What? What do you mean? They finished her. Look at her brains. Oh, God. Oh, no. What in the name? Julia. No. Please note that William's last two lines were taken verbatim from historical account. And that brief dialogue after finding his wife's body is unsettling. Definitely an odd choice of words, but there was Julia lying face down in front of the fireplace, a chunk of her skull bashed in, and some of her brains exposed. Part of her clothes and the raincoat she was lying on top of had been burnt by the fire. And she was most certainly dead. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. Four important players in this case reported to the scene. First, there was Sergeant Harry Bailey. Then came Inspector Herbert Gold. He would eventually conduct a thorough interrogation of William. It is believed that William and Inspector Gold knew each other because William collected insurance premiums from him. Then came the head honcho on duty, Detective Superintendent Hubert Moore. And lastly, there was John McFall, Professor of Forensic Medicine. A man who held himself in the highest esteem, but whose forensic work on this case would prove to be pretty shoddy. Good evening, Mr. Wallace. I'll be examining the body. Have you given your report? I have, to Inspector Gold and that gentleman. Sergeant Bailey. Nice to make your acquaintance. And yours. Mr. Wallace, thank you for rehashing the details of the evening. I'm sure it must have been most unpleasant for you. That's all you can do for now. I must step in and do my part. Sergeant Bailey, will you see Mr. Wallace out? What do you think, John? Based on the rigor of the victim's body, I'd say she was killed at... 8 p.m. this evening, give or take an hour. Could you be more precise? I don't need to. I have a knack for this kind of thing. If I didn't, I'd surely be begging on the streets with the best of them, wouldn't I? Well, this haphazard assessment would become very important later on. See, there are two main ways to determine the time of death. One is to insert a thermometer into the victim's rectum to get a reading of their internal body temperature. Well, this method is much more accurate than simply judging the stiffness of the body called rigor mortis. Which is, of course, what McFall did, even though this mode was considered somewhat outdated even for 1931. And what have you gathered from your study of the scene? 
No signs of an intruder. No forced entry. There's a bit of disorder in this room here, but nothing that would suggest a full-fledged robbery. Is anything missing? From that cabinet where Mr. Wallace keeps his insurance money. He says he's missing a few pounds. Is that all? Hmm. And what do you make of this coat beneath her? It's Macintosh. Fine piece of material, if I may say so. It's large. Much too big for the victim. This isn't her jacket. No, it's Mr. Wallace's. Did he explain how it got here? He doesn't know. He remembers hanging it up. This Macintosh coat, a popular brand at the time and comparable to a rain slicker, would become an important piece of evidence. It was burned on one side as if the flames from the fire had singed it. Strange that it was found underneath Julia, considering it was Williams. Why didn't he wear it that evening? That's a good question. Perhaps the rain had let up? What about a murder weapon? Based on these wounds, I'd say the victim was struck multiple times on the skull with a hard, large-headed instrument. We've searched the premises. No sign of anything that fits that description. So the murderer stashed it or took it? I suppose so. We must find it. Conduct another thorough search. John, your jurisdiction lies within the confines of the body. Yes. And this body was brutally vandalized by a missing object I need your men to find. Is there anything opaque about that? I'll order another search. What's this about a search? Superintendent Moore, we're missing the murder weapon. I see. Well, go beyond the house. Make sure to search the gardens, the sewers, and any areas adjacent to the tram lines between Wolverton and Menlove. Yes, sir. And we are to bring in Mr. Wallace for more questioning. He'll need to make a formal statement. Of course. It's going to be a long evening. And so the lengthy interrogations began, this time at the police station. While he was questioned, William drank tea and chain-smoked. Now, Mr. Wallace, is there anyone who would have access to your house when you're not at home? Someone your wife may have let inside? There is someone. A former colleague of mine, Richard Gordon Perry. He worked at the Prue with me. Julia knew him well. If someone were to come into my house unannounced, with the motive to steal or otherwise, it would be Perry. Why do you say that? There were some complications between the two of us. Complications? I confronted him. About what? He was short. I'm sorry? On the collections. He, in more than one instance, brought me less than what was documented. He stole from you? That is correct. And from the company, essentially. I brought it up with my superintendent, who dealt with the matter as he saw fit. He fired Mr. Perry. In a manner of speaking, yes. And you have reason to believe that Perry blamed you for his termination? I do. Just to confirm, he had been to your house before? Yes, on many occasions. What sort of occasions? When I was too ill to work, he would take over my rounds, collect the insurance subscriptions, and deposit the takings into a cash box I keep in a cabinet. This the same box you say you're missing four pounds from? That is correct. Perry did work with William before he was let go from the Prue. But it's important to note that Perry knew William from the club as well. Perry didn't play chess, but he was a member of Mersey Amateur Drama Society. And their club also met at Cottle's City Cafe. It's likely they would have run into each other there from time to time. Perry was eventually brought in for questioning. He gave an alibi for the night of the mysterious phone call and the night of the murder. The fact that he gave an alibi for the previous night was a bit strange, considering the police were more interested in the night of the murder. How would he know to cover his tracks for the night before the murder? Yes, that is suspicious. However, it didn't really register with investigators. Not the sharpest tools in the shed. Apparently, he had visited his girlfriend, Lily Lloyd, around the same time Qualtro phoned the club. 
On Monday, January 19th, I called for my young lady, Miss Lillian Lloyd, at some address where she had been teaching. And what is that address? I can't recall. We soon left, and I accompanied her to her home at about 5.30 p.m. I stayed there until about 11.30. As for the night of the murder, Perry recounts several of his activities. On Tuesday the 20th, I finished work about 5.30 in the evening and called upon Mrs. Brine and visited with her, her daughter and her nephew, until 8.30 p.m. Then I bought a pack of cigarettes before visiting Lily around 9 p.m. Considering forensic expert John McFall recorded the time of death at 8 p.m., it seems Perry would not have been able to kill Julia before arriving at his girlfriend Lily's place. Well, let's not forget that McFall was not so precise with his estimation of time of death. Right. And there may have been some wiggle room in between Perry finishing work and visiting Mrs. Brine. But since the authorities were going off the 8 p.m. time, I guess it's somewhat understandable that they put Perry on the back burner. We can assume that the investigators felt he had a strong enough alibi that they didn't need to pursue him as a suspect at the time. That being said, there is an incident involving Perry that we have to address. Note that it didn't come out right away, but it is extremely significant to the case. The night of the murder, hours after the investigation began, Richard Gordon Perry brought his car into Atkinson's all-night garage. Looking for a late-night tune-up? Not exactly. He told the man on duty there, John Parks, who he was well acquainted with, that he needed a quick hosing down of the outside and the inside of his vehicle. Uh, car looks clean to me, Rich. It's not. Just do what I ask, will you? Okay. No need to fret. Parks started the high-powered hose and began cleaning. Then he reached inside the glove compartment to remove a leather baseball mitt so it wouldn't get damaged by the water. When he pulled it out... He noticed it was covered in blood. Parks tried to inquire, but he could sense that Perry was very agitated. Not wanting to poke the bear, Parks kept quiet. And once the car was cleaned, Perry drove off in a hurry. But he left quite the impression on Parks, who told his boss, Mr. Atkinson, about the strange encounter. They were both aware of the death of Julia and knew that William was considered a suspect, but hadn't been arrested yet. So Atkinson told Parks to keep quiet about the incident. If William ended up getting arrested, Parks could come forward with the information then, but he shouldn't get involved at this point. There was no need. Meanwhile, the investigative team decided to retrace William's route while adhering to the timeline he gave them. Three different pairs of officers reenacted William's journey the night of the murder. They analyzed the timing of the tram rides and cross-referenced this information with the details of William's statement and Julia's recorded time of death. This exercise proved helpful for them. They concluded that William did have ample time to kill his wife. But the prime investigators on the case needed more. So, Detective Superintendent Moore, Sergeant Bailey, and Inspector Gold continued their debates, and all angles were considered. This Wallace, he plays chess, does he not? He's a member of the Liverpool Chess Club. Is he any good? He's average, I have gathered. But he plays it nonetheless. Yes. He knows the game. He understands the underlying objective. Where are you going with this? What is the most important aspect in chess? Winning? Yes, but how do you win? Expert moves. Anticipation. That determines what moves take place. The best defense is a strong offense. You predict what your opponent may do, so you plan accordingly. To preemptively counteract it. I prefer checkers. What are you saying, Herbert? This RM Qualtro business. It unnerves me for some reason and Wallace's conversations with the streetcar conductors, and the impossible address that sent Wallace all over town. It's just too... Strange? No. Perfect. 
Almost preemptive. You think he intended to establish a false alibi? I think a man who plays chess is calculating. Logical. Someone who makes sure to cross his T's and dot his I's before he's even written them. That is sheer opinion, Herbert. Not entirely. Gentlemen, I just spoke with the operator at the Anfield Exchange, the call made to the cafe the night before the murder. Yes? It was traced to a phone booth 400 yards from Mr. Wallace's flat. Is that so? You see? He could have easily rang the chess club on his way to the tram stop. He could have embellished his voice. Are you to say that Mr. Wallace is this elusive Qualtro? Like I said, calculating. Yes, it is rather suspect. Let's not forget that there was no evidence of forced entry. Mrs. Wallace most likely knew her killer and let him inside. Remind me, what the housekeeper said in her statement? When I brought her to the house to look it over, she noted that a poker from the fireplace was missing. Which means it could very well be our murder weapon. An intruder could have easily picked that up. The missing weapon has no bearing on William's guilt or innocence at this juncture. But I will admit, the circumstances, especially now with the proximity of the call to the victim's house... It is as clear as day to me. Well, until it's as clear as day to all of us, we continue to debate and review the evidence. That is the only way justice prevails. 7 p.m. February 2nd. Almost two weeks after Julia was found murdered, a car full of officers pulled up outside the flat of Julia's sister, Amy. William was staying with his sister-in-law because investigators had torn up the plumbing at his house to look for traces of blood and other evidence. When the police arrived, William's nephew, Edwin, answered the door thinking it was his mother returning from her errands. Hello, son. We'd like to speak with Mr. Wallace. Good evening. Won't you sit down? I'm afraid not. Do you remember who I am? Of course. William Herbert Wallace, it is my duty to arrest you for the willful murder of your wife, Julia Wallace. What can I say in answer to a charge of which I'm absolutely innocent? After William's arrest, Liverpool citizens were in a tizzy. It seemed that everyone had a theory. Some people believed William was indeed the killer. But since no motive emerged straight from the authorities, the press had to fill in the blanks. And boy, did they go to town with that. The first proposed motive was that this soft-spoken and nebbish insurance salesman was really a disciple of a man named Aleister Crowley. Crowley was a British occultist and magician who founded a religion called Philema and proclaimed that he was a prophet. He also happened to look like a cross between Uncle Fester and Winston Churchill. <laughs> Creepy. Along with this theory, William was accused of being an opium addict who slept with numerous women. A quiet insurance salesman, really? Well, theory number three about William's motive, he purposely overinsured Julie with a hefty policy in case she ever died. Ooh, but that's not all. The press suggested Wallace was having an affair with Julia's sister Amy, and that would give him a double motive. Mm, however, there was no proof that William was sleeping with Julia's sister. And Julia's life insurance policy was actually a meager 20 pounds. That's nothing worth killing over. Well, theory number four, and the kindest of all, Julia was dying of a terminal disease. And William, ever the compassionate husband, had performed a mercy killing, putting her out of her misery of a slow and painful death. By bludgeoning her 11 times and spraying the walls with her blood? Something like that. Mm, it's a far cry away from ingesting poison or shooting lethal toxins into the body. Right. I can't imagine that Julia said, Oh, please, darling, please bash it in my head until there's nothing left of it. That's really the way I want to go. Well, maybe she didn't tell him to. Maybe she wanted to die, and he chose the manner in which she did. She was sick on and off the last few years of her life. 
Well, it seems pretty unlikely that he would choose such a violent mode. Any other theories? Mm, Not so much regarding a motive for William, but there is the theory that William was innocent and the true killer was possibly a lover of Julia's, one she was seeing in secret and potentially blackmailing. (laughs) We should put a pin in that. If William could be accused of having a secret life full of opium, Satanists, and loose women, then Julia could just have easily had a lover on the side. Touché. Well, the only question then would be who? And of course, we have to shine a light on that Perry character. The evidence of foul play is pretty strong here. Yes, and he would have the motive for revenge against William for getting him fired. His desperate desire to wash his car and the bloody baseball glove is more than suspicious. Whatever came of that? Well, the mechanic, John Parks, kept his agreement with his superior, Mr. Atkinson. Now that William had been arrested, Parks went to the authorities to share the story about Perry's car and his agitated state the night of the murder. Then what happened? The police disregarded the testimony. Well, they were convinced they had found their killer, and they were ready to see him pay. So they didn't consider other suspects? Apparently not at this point. They were going after William, and only William. This seems highly negligent. Authorities felt Perry had a good enough alibi. And maybe they were biased from the start. The husband is always the first suspect when his wife is found dead. Yes, but at this point, we are left with so many questions and possible scenarios. Was William terribly unhappy as some of his diary entries led on? Did he secretly despise his wife and simply decided to kill her one evening? If so, did he plan her murder like moves in a chess game? And what about Perry? Did this slighted former insurance agent plan to enact revenge on William by robbing him and killing his wife? And was there more to the story of Perry and Julia? They knew each other well, and it suggested they may have been extra friendly, if you know what I mean. Could he have been her secret lover turned vicious killer? We'll find out more next week on Unsolved Murders as we take you through William's trial and beyond. The moves in this game are hardly predictable. And none of the pieces of this mysterious tableau are black and white. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory, or through our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode of Unsolved Murders comes out every Tuesday. Let us know what you think and join the conversation on our Parcast Facebook page. You can tweet us at Parcast Network. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T Network. We thank you for listening and hope you'll join us next Tuesday when we continue our investigation into the murder of Julia Wallace. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends. I'm Wendy McKenzie. And I'm Carter Roy. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. Sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire. Unsolved Murders is written by Jessica Molo and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Janice Liebhart, Nick Masu, Manu Ryan, Steve Pinto, Greg Polson, and Vanessa Richardson. Unsolved.